0: For the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look this morning in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and as I mentioned earlier, this is it's a unique time in the, the, the church calendar, but it's also a unique time in, in the text of John, this ancient account uh, of this uh, disciple of Jesus. As he reflects on the life of Jesus, he will spend the next several chapters telling us of this conversation, of this talk of these instructions that Jesus gave his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. It's often called the the upper room discourse or the the farewell discourse. It is the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus showed them that would make them ready so that his death and resurrection would be comprehensible to them. And so as we go through the season of Lent, we are going to go through the The same preparation exercise uh, as we hope that these disciples did to to see who Jesus is. And to see how awkward that can make us feel sometimes. Join me as I uh, read here from John chapter 13, the first 30 verses. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For I knew who was, who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? <clears throat> you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so, am I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you, do not, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some that thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give him some or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, this Room and the scene. Lord, our imagination struggled to, to, to find our seat at that table, to understand what it was like to sit with you at the table. Lord, to feel your hands washing our feet or to hear your cryptic words of what was about to come. And yet, Lord, you have given us these words by John so that we can hear and that we can know. Lord, so that we can come to see just who it is that you revealed yourself to be on that night so very long ago. Lord, help us to see, help us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was about the most awkward dinner party that the human mind of could conceive of. Many of you will have uh, know this. It was the night that Michael Scott, Invited Jim and Pam, Andy and Angela over to he and Jan's place for dinner. It's an episode in a show called The Office and, and there's a, 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 a particular episode. This show that thrives off of the awkward human dynamics of a of a of a workplace, right? But there's this one particular episode when this the the manager Michael Scott, who's so out of touch with reality and so uh, just so weird, right? He's just so awkward, and he uh, convinces. Well, actually, he manipulates. Uh, this, the, these people that he desperately wants to be his friends to, to uh, tell them he had, they have to work late so that they uh, will cancel the plans. And then he says, well, actually, you don't have to work late, but I'm having dinner at my house, so come on over. And he manipulates them into coming. This particular episode is so spectacular, spectacularly awkward Right, That while it it filmed like 12 years ago, it's still... I just saw an article a few months ago where where Rolling Stone called it... Perhaps the best comedy episode of the decade. Because it's just so bad, right? So cringeworthy. It's so awkward. Michael's tricks Jim and Pam into coming... But when they arrive at the meal... With Michael and their their previous uh their previous boss Jan Livingston Gold, right? They arrive and 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 Jan informs them that the uh, what was it the the buco still needs another three hours to braise in the oven, right? They 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 they've come unrelentingly to this thing and immediately are discovered that they're gonna be there for a long while, right? what were Jen, what were what were michael and jan thinking but it got more awkward than that right there's these tension and these forms, and then eventually it gets to this place where, where the, the women and the men are separated, and, and as the women are checking on the food, which by the way is not anywhere close to done, Jan says, uh, she then turns and she confronts Pam, saying, Pam, you've been making moves on Michael. I know you've got an eye for Michael, right? And, and if you're like me and have enough social anxiety in your life, right, like you're like pacing the floor, right? Like, I can't watch this. Michael is is takes the guys aside and, and he starts giving them a pitch for why they should invest in Jan's uh, candle making business, right? And your cringe is setting in, but then it gets even more awkward, right? Uh, the the then Dwight brings over his sixty year old former babysitter Melvina, right, to dinner, unannounced and uninvited right, uh, Jan and Michael begin to fight, and, and Michael confides to Pam, I think Jan might be poisoning me, right, the, it gets, and it crescendos to the point where, where Jan throws one of Michael's Dundee trophies at his 20-inch plasma screen TV, right, and the police are called, and by the time you get to this point in the episode, you're thinking, are, have these people ever had a normal social encounter? Right? What planet are they from? We come to this text, this dinner party, and and for those of you who grew up in the church, you've heard this story so much that some of the, the profound weirdness, the profound awkwardness of this event might be lost on you. But when Jesus comes as the host of this party, he does things. He defies all the social norms of the day that would have left the disciples in that room feeling particularly strange, particularly awkward, particularly thinking, what is he doing? What planet is he from? Jesus, can't we just have dinner so we want to look at this morning uh, Two particular ways that this mint this dinner is awkward First for the disciples as a whole And then second we'll look at how this dinner is awkward For one of the disciples, Judas in particular So first that it's awkward for the disciples If you uh, are, are reading this text you, you immediately notice that there's a strange behavior that happens It says that During supper, during supper, not before supper, not when they arrived, but in the middle of them sitting and gathering around the table, Jesus stands up and begins to disrobe. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where the host stands up and begins to take off his coat in the middle of dinner, but you can imagine that it was probably slightly strange. He then proceeds to tie a towel around his waist and and go to, to the disciples, one at a time, and to take their feet in his hands and, and to wash their feet. This is so profoundly strange, not because foot washings didn't happen, but because they did. But the person who washed your feet was not your teacher. It was not the person who was the host of the event. It was, it was a, a servant. But not just any servant, it was the lowest of servants. They wouldn't even make Jewish servants wash feet because it was so disgusting, it was so gross, it was so uh, de-humiliating, right? To wash the feet of, of men who walked around on dirt streets covered in animal droppings, right? It was a job that was so dehumanizing that they wouldn't even demean uh, their fellow Jewish brother with the job. They would force some other lower level Gentile to do the task. So Jesus gets up and not only does he interrupt the flow of the evening... He then takes the, the social order uh, and turns it on his head, right? He doesn't just drop down one level to be a peer with the disciples. He drops down like three or four rungs on the social ladder. And then he forces them all to sit there as he washes. I don't know how long it takes to wash 12 people's feet. But I'm guessing it's not quick, right? I'm As I'm reading this text, I'm picturing... Uh, Pam sitting in the half bath, going, uh, what does she What does she say? She says, uh, I just want to eat dinner. Is that so much to ask at a dinner party? Jesus, we just want to eat dinner. We just want to have the Passover meal. Jesus, you're you're keeping the food from being eaten. Jesus, you're acting uh, in a disgusting, revolting sort of way. Jesus, you're 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 making us feel really uncomfortable. But it gets even more awkward. Because then Dwight Schrute speaks up. I mean, Peter speaks up. And Peter can't just sit there and go along with something. Peter has to vocalize his two cents. And his two cents are always add awkwardness to to the social gathering. He says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And just as awkwardly, Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you have no share in me. But then it gets even more awkward. The text goes on, and, and Jesus then, after he's finished washing his feet, gathers the group around and says, all right, you, let's, let's deconstruct what just happened here. Let's talk about it. As he says, do you understand what I have done to you? And the answer is, no, we don't know what you're doing. Jesus, why are you so awkward? Why are you so strange? I've written an article uh, about awkwardness. And this researcher, uh, Tai Tashiro, uh, says this about this this, uh, awkwardness that we encounter with other people. And I thought it was helpful. He says, when people who are habitually awkward encounter a social situation they see things from a different way than everyone else does it says being awkward can feel like being a traveler in a foreign country when you are not quite proficient in the local language you see jesus was awkward to the dinner party of this world because jesus comes to this dinner party from another world from another kingdom You see, they thought they were gathering around the Passover table from yesteryear, but what Jesus was doing was setting a table for his new and coming kingdom. This table would not operate. This social environment would not operate according to the patterns of this world, but it would operate according to the kingdom of God that he was bringing in. See, Jesus' head was someplace else entirely. Note those first two verses. Where is it that Jesus is thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Well, listen how he starts the meal as he approaches it. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so during supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him, Jesus Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, he took off his robe and washed their feet. You see, Jesus, we call this the the last supper, but in many ways this is the functional first supper of Jesus' new kingdom. This is the first supper where we begin to see what it is that Jesus has been building all along. And we see that Jesus in this kingdom is compelled by a motive and that motive is a love a love that's profound a long, a love that's extreme people like to argue about well when it says he loved them to the end does that mean he loved them to like the utmost extreme or does that mean he loved them to the very bitter end of his life and the answer is probably yes right He loved them to such a profound extreme that it didn't matter how awkward he was in the environment. What mattered is that they found a seat in the new kingdom. Because that was the other thing. It wasn't just a love. It was a security. It was a surety that Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew that his death and resurrection were coming. Jesus knew that his kingdom was real. And so the fact that his kingdom was real forces him, compels him, gives him the standing and the grounding to be extremely awkward in this world because he's setting a table for the next. But for the disciples who sit there, for Peter who sits there with the conceptions of, of power and status and pride of this world, Jesus is extremely awkward. Jesus is extremely off-putting. Peter objects when Jesus comes to wash his feet, not because he doesn't want his feet washed. He objects because it's not right. Because if the person above me on the social ladder washes my feet, then where does that put me? If the person above me on the ladder of social hierarchy, of power, of influence... And if he is washing my feet, then what am I working towards, right? Like, if I've worked my whole career and only to get, arrive back at the, the, the fryer and McDonald's that I started at when I was 15, then what have I done? But Jesus says to him, if you do not let me wash you, then you have no share in me. Because Jesus knows that God's kingdom... If you do not buy into the power of love over the power of pride, then God's kingdom is not for you. It's not a kingdom that you will enjoy. It's not a kingdom that you even want to be in. But if you can allow Jesus to wash your feet, if you can see that the love of Jesus pushes to such the extreme that he would come as a king who serves, then you can see that God's awkward Position is really the place that you want to be. He's not a Michael Scott that you cringe and hope you never are. He's the Michael Scott that you desperately, who's been right all along. As Paul would tell us, love is not proud. And so Jesus tells his disciples to embrace the awkwardness. Verses 13 and 17 through seventeen. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you example, and you and you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than those who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, when Jesus commands them to wash their feet, he's not just literally telling them to wash one another's feet. He's telling them that this is a kingdom where service this is a kingdom where God. Where they look and they receive the love that God shows them, and they show it to others. Not just by washing feet, but by cooking meals, by opening up their homes. For some of us, uh, to, to serve another person means we actually have to leave our home and, and go to that awkward event that they invited us too, right. It, it means to clothe and to feed and to give to the needy. It means to, to use your spot at the head of the table to accommodate for those in the middle or maybe even for those who weren't even invited to begin with. Because the kingdom that Jesus is setting a table for is a kingdom that is not run by love of power or love of pride, but love of the other person. This meal was awkward for the disciples because they were proud. But Jesus offers them another way. It was awkward for the disciples, but it was especially awkward, I said, for for one particular disciple, for Judas. I don't know if you can imagine what that would feel like, right? To be Judas who is about to go sell uh, Jesus's location to the, the Pharisees and the tribes. He's already negotiated a deal, the text that tells us that Jesus is well aware of what Judas has done, but Judas doesn't know that Judas doesn't know that Jesus knows. It's like a tongue twister here, right? And so when Jesus works his way around the table and he takes a hold of Judas's feet, What would that have felt like? If you have just knowingly, knowing that you are about to betray the person who is kneeling at your feet, to look him in the eye would feel, well, probably feel pretty awkward, wouldn't it? But Judas likely would have comforted himself. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know what he's doing. But can you imagine the awkwardness when Jesus then says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas feeling this awkwardness of his unfaithfulness begins to, to feel the horror as Jesus says in verse 21 truly truly I say to you one of you will betray me. Judas's not just his pride but also his unfaithfulness is what makes this situation about as awkward as humanly possible. He doesn't know whether to run or whether to stay. He doesn't know whether to confess or whether to deny. But then to make things even more awkward, our friend Peter comes back in. So Simon Peter motioned uh, to, to the disciple whom Jesus loved. In the Gospel of John, most uh, scholars assume that, that, that this is a title that John is referring to himself right? So the table is set and and John is sitting right next to Jesus. And and Peter, knowing that he's just made a fool of himself once, right? And also, secondly, that he's sitting on the other end of the table. He's like, well, I'm not going to make a fool of myself twice. I'll make John do it, right? Like the situation is so awkward that as John is telling us the story, he has to be like, well, I didn't want to ask. Peter made me do it, right? Peter put me up to it. And in that moment, to make the the tension for Judas and the tension for the room even more awkward is John asking, who is it, Jesus? Who is it that will betray you? The tension, the awkwardness you could cut with a knife, but it gets even more awkward. Because while Jesus tells John this is a sign of who it is, what Jesus does is he takes a a piece of bread and he, he dips it. And he hands it to Judas. This is a a sign in in the ancient Near East. When you gathered at the table, the host of the meal would give out the the, the tastiest morsels, the, the most delicious bites. And he would give them to his honored guests to show them esteem, to show them love, to show them friendship. So Judas is sitting there knowing the depths of his unfaithfulness as Jesus knowing that judas will betray him offers him the tastiest morsel of the food as judas is planning to betray jesus jesus is reaching out his hand and what one commentator says is a final gesture of supreme love jesus knew that as he stretched out his hand that judas was going to bite it but jesus Pushed the awkwardness of the situation to its furthest extent, so that when Judas leaves the room into the dark, Judas' his last interaction with Jesus will be Jesus's open hand to him. When Judas shows his unfaithfulness to its fullest extent, he will have seen. The awkward encounter, the persistent awkwardness of Jesus, showing him that the kingdom that Jesus is offering is one where love triumphs over unfaithfulness. Judas would have expected uh, Jesus, once he knows it was him, to... For the hammer to fall down For the one who betrays to be rejected right? To be restrained To be harassed To at least have his, his plan spoiled But Jesus does none of those things Jesus instead takes this opportunity This last second With his disciple Judas This one whom he has loved To show him to the final extent To the very end Judas I love you you see, at Judas' table, at the table of this world, Judas's conception is that self-preservation ruled the day. But at the table that Jesus was setting, love is not bound by unfaithfulness. It's not bound by enemies. This is a love that does not keep a record of wrongs. And this is a love that does not insist upon its own way. John writes back on this. And he considers the extreme betrayal of Judas, but he's not just thinking about Judas. Because when John writes this text, he knows and in a few verses he's going to tell us about Peter's rejection of Jesus. John writes this text knowing full well that the awkwardness that, that Judas felt at that dinner, he should have felt himself. Because not a single one of them would stay by Jesus' side. The awkwardness that Judas felt, they should have all felt. Because they were all unfaithful but John, but jesus washes each and every one of their feet jesus hands out food to each and every one of them because he wants them to know that this table is not a table of this world you see the lengths And the extent of Jesus' love, that he loves his enemies, that he loves those who persecute him, that he loves those who reject him and who deceive him and who betray him and are unfaithful to him. It feels really awkward if you're not familiar with that kind of love. But that is the love that this new kingdom is built on. Our minds and our hearts are often still trapped in, in this old kingdom, a kingdom where pride, maintaining your pride is of utmost importance or, or preserving yourself is of utmost importance. But Jesus is offering Judas and he's offering John and Peter and he's offering us the opportunity to embrace the awkwardness of living in this world with the heart and the love of the next. He's offering us the opportunity to see that we can engage this world with a love that knows no bounds. That we can engage this world not for ourselves, but for those who are near. And so the Christian church, while it's known for many things which are irre- irre- irreputable, has always been a place that, that continues to, to, to hold out hope for the most unlovely to hold out hope for those who would sooner reject us. We live in this church and in this place where many of our neighbors would just as soon we not exist. In fact, some of them would actively like for us to not exist, and yet we live here that we might show them love and kindness. Right? We live in a world where people hurt us and wound us. And yet we don't treat them according to what has been done to us, but according to what the love that Jesus has shown us. We don't give them what their sins deserve, we get them what the love of Jesus deserves for them. See, the table of God's new kingdom is awkward for Judas because of his unfaithfulness. But if Jesus, if Judas understood what was going on, he would know that Jesus was setting that table especially for people just like him. And so God invites us into the awkwardness of living out his kingdom in the midst of this world. He invites us to embrace it. I remember when I was, uh, okay, so I was an awkward kid. I was a loner kid. Um, I like, to the extent that, like, I didn't really have friends in any active sort of way until I was in middle school, right? Like normally you have kids, as, you have friends as you're a kid and then you get to middle school and they all leave you. I was the opposite, right? Like I had no friends. I hung out on the playground by myself and, and, and by the time I got to middle school, it was the first time that I started having friends and, 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 would, and realized that I could like ask a friend to come hang out and it wouldn't be, uh, the world wouldn't melt down, right? In fact, it made life a lot better. Right? But I was so afraid of rejection and, and so envious for my pride that for most of my childhood, I lived in fear of, of, of revealing myself, of inviting others to come into my life. I was a kid who lived in my own awkwardness because I thought it protected me from something. So I just finally got into the place where I could actually have friends and and invite them to hang out. And then I got into my freshman year of high school and discovered that I was going to have to ask a girl to go to the homecoming if I was, in fact, going to be a part of the party, right? As someone who who was not even uh, familiar with inviting a friend over to come hang out, right, like you can imagine how terrifying this invitation was, how profoundly awkward I felt in this moment. But I knew that I wanted to be a part of the party. I knew I wanted to be there with my friends. I knew that I wanted to to go to the dinner and go to the dance and go to the after party. I knew that what I was being invited to do, while so very painful, and while I felt so out of my skin, that asking a girl, Molly Gunther, to homecoming... That if I just embraced that awkwardness, that I could see life on a whole new level. Would I try in that moment to protect my pride? Would I try in that moment uh, to to protect uh, my fear of being rejected by just staying home? Or would I embrace the awkwardness of asking her to the dance so that I could find new life? I think in this text and in the text that follow, Jesus is inviting us to embrace a certain kind of awkwardness that for some of us is utterly terrifying. Because it's a world that we don't understand. It's a world where, where the, those at the top serve those at the bottom, where, where those who are rejected and those who are scorned show love to their accusers and to their betrayers. It's a world that we don't understand. And it was going to feel a little bit awkward. But God has invited us to this kingdom and the party is so grand and so beautiful. The opportunity to be and live and to know what real flourishing is, is so beautiful and grand that Jesus says, I will bring you there. If you will join me in the here and in the now. So we embrace the awkwardness because the kingdom is. Of God awaits for such as these. Pray with me. Father, we gather here today and God, our hearts can be pulled in so many different directions. And Lord, even right now, so we probably have dozens, if not hundreds of different things on our minds. God, that that this transition from the old kingdom into the new kingdom is something that is in some ways so unique to each one of us and yet is so consistent in others that you are the God who chases after us, who shows us love and mercy so that we can respond and so that we can see. Help us to see your love. Help us to see your forgiveness. Help us to see that you have loved us to the furthest extent, that you have loved us to the very end. I pray this in Jesus' name.